Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. Over the past week, the Daily Telegraph has been publishing stories from a huge cache of WhatsApp messages from former Health Secretary Matt Hancock. They reveal the minute-by-minute discussions behind all the government decisions throughout the COVID era. They were obtained by a journalist called Isabel Oakeshott, and she in turn was given them by Mr. Hancock when she was ghostwriting his book for him. She's now made them public for all to see. She's with me in the studio to look back over the last week. Hi, Isabel. Hi, thank you for having me. So I want to start weirdly for us, because normally we don't like to talk about other media, Mm. on the, the media reaction to the story for the past week, because it's been quite extraordinary how much they've gone after you, there's been a, a real sense that it somehow broke an unwritten rule of the media, what you did. How's that been for you? So I think it's fair to say there's been quite a big reaction. No journalist ever wants to break a big story that then somehow disappears. So that's great. I think that the reaction has been quite polarised. I think it partly depends what side of the divide you sat on in terms of your response to the pandemic. So If you were uh, sceptical about the government's response to the pandemic, you are absolutely delighted to see all this information that probably confirms so many things that you already suspected about what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, If you are entrenched in your view that the only way to respond to the threat posed by this virus was to shut down society, not once, not twice, but repeatedly for very long periods, you've got a very, very vested interest in continuing to argue that you must have been right and these messages don't tell us anything that much new. Yeah, so in other words, the media, in some respects, is part of that vested interest. I mean, that's sort of the impression you get, isn't it? I mean, you've read many more of these messages than we have and only some of them have been made public. Are there other messages in this cache of WhatsApp files that concern media figures? I mean, have you read messages from journalists to Matt Hancock that they would not like to be published? I certainly wouldn't be in the business of publishing journalist messages. You know, I think that would cross the line. uh, And I don't think that I should talk about anything in those files that The Telegraph hasn't published to date. Okay, so you're not going to be drawn on on that. But the, the atmosphere then, I mean, we saw that Kathy Newman interview when she really went for you. 
the Today programme interview, quite a few of these interviews have really gone at you, first of all, on this question of the sharing of the messages that you were given for a book, and then also this sort of intramedia story about Times versus Telegraph, none of which I suspect is that interesting to normal people, but which shows something about the, the proximity of the media and the government, and how there's almost a sense that the media has to defend its own record during this period. Do you think that's fair? And I think the media really does have to defend its own record during this period. And by and large, I think that record is pretty indefensible. The reality is that day after day, hour after hour, journalists did not hold the government to account over these extraordinary decisions that were being taken that continue to affect millions of people's lives. The journalists, the, the political lobby was complicit in egging on the government to take ever harsher lockdown measures. The government seemed to be trapped in a kind of doom loop in which they terrified the population, then polled the population to see if measures that they presented as being to protect the population were popular. And hey, presto, yes, those, those measures were popular because people were terrified. And accordingly, their opinion uh, ratings, their approval ratings went up. And so this became a kind of ever reinforcing circle, didn't it? And I think that um, members of the lobby, um, I can't say because I wasn't in the lobby at the time, how it felt to be in those press briefings. And look, um, I don't really want to sit here and criticize other journalists, but those who have criticized me uh, all too often are mm. not the people who were challenging the government, I mean, if I could all, put it like that. Yeah, we all saw those press conferences. They were televised. And the question was always, why did you not lock down sooner? Yeah. Should you not be locking down yeah. harsher? The, the, we've got some of the messages I want to put up on the screen. The first one is a message between Matt Hancock, serving health secretary, and his former boss, George Osborne, previously Chancellor of the Exchequer, now editor of the Evening Standard at that point. And he says, uh, I need to call in a favour tomorrow... I really could do with a testing splash. Can we make this happen? And Osborne replies, yes, of course, all you need to do tomorrow is give some exclusive words to the stand and I'll tell the team to splash it. <laughs> well, mean, look, to be fair to George Osborne, um, former chancellor, then editor of the Evening Standard, he wasn't always uncritical of Matt Hancock, as we know from these messages. He also said, nobody thinks testing is going well, comma, Matt. It was a pretty wry uh, message, a pretty damning assessment from his own uh, one of his best friends. Um, but look, I think what you're getting at is a rather overly cosy relationship between journalists and politicians. And I've had to play that game too. You know, when you're in the lobby, the small group of journalists that have the, um, the pass, the security pass that gives them access to the corridors of power, as it were, you've got to build those relationships uh, in order to find out anything. The question is whether you ever, as a result of your endless efforts to ingratiate yourself with these figures, are actually told anything that's that big, or are you just getting little snippets here and there? I think the job of a journalist is not to hide political secrets, is not to watch the back of their uh, friends in Parliament, it is to expose truths that are in the public interest. And rather than focusing on whether I can be trusted, I wonder whether some of these critics might ask themselves whether they can be trusted by the public to publish information that is in the overwhelming public interest. Look, this hasn't been easy for me. You know, 
I'm not stupid. I knew I was going to get a load of brickbats. If anyone thinks that I find that fun, if I find that enjoyable, if being attacked by my own colleagues is some kind of pleasurable experience or I get some kind of kick out of it, they must be completely bonkers. It's not easy, but I happen to feel passionately that the response to the pandemic was a catastrophe, that millions of people are still suffering hugely as a result of flawed decision-making, that the public inquiry still has no deadline. How can that be a credible process if there is no deadline for delivery of its findings? And so weighing all that up, I took the decision that it was in the public interest to put this information out there. I don't have any regrets about it. And yes, I've paid a price and that's okay. Let's get into the actual substance of what we've learned from these. I mean, I've been printing them out and looking at them over the last um, days. And it feels like the main or perhaps the first thing that you notice is just how political the decisions became. I mean, we have a couple we can put on the screen now. This is the now famous message when um, Matt Hancock asks, when do we deploy the new variant? As if it's a kind of comms PR strategy. Well, which it was. Which it was. Talking about frightening the pants off everyone with the new strain. Um, And there's another message I just want to show, um, which really shows spin over science, I think, where Chris Whitty is putting to Matt Hancock the idea that actually the 14 or 10 days of isolation was too much and not necessary. Five days would have been fine. And Hancock rejects it, he pushes back, the politician pushing back against the scientist, on the grounds that it sounds like too much loosening. It would have suggested that the 14-day isolation had been too long all this time and would imply that we'd been getting it wrong. So clearly, I think this is proof that it was politics first, science second. And that is quite a terrifying discovery. How can anybody credibly read and listen to that and say, for us to know is not in the public interest? How can anyone argue that voters don't deserve to know this is how the government treated this public health emergency? Of course people deserve to know that. I'm kind of on board with that at this point. Yeah, but a lot of people are still questioning the public interest. So look, some of this stuff is pretty shocking. Um, What do you think this shows? I mean, what do you think we've learned from that kind of message about how these decisions were actually taken? What we learn from these messages as a whole, uh, what we see... Uh, is a government flailing around. Uh, In fact, let me rephrase that. It's not a government flailing around. It is a very small number of people who had seized unprecedented levels of power over everyday lives, and they were not subject to anything like the normal checks and balances, the normal scrutiny. They weren't even subject to cabinet scrutiny. We heard earlier this week, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who was a cabinet minister at the time, openly saying, actually, I didn't see some of this stuff. I was in the cabinet. No one told me about it. I was trying to make a a pro-business, let's try to keep society open case, he said. Uh, But I couldn't, I didn't have all the arguments at my fingertips because I wasn't shown them. So the reality is a small number of people were running the country They had a huge burden of responsibility on their shoulders. I don't think any of us would envy what they had to do. Um, But we all know about the saying absolute power and what absolute power does to people. I'm not saying that they were corrupted, but I think they lost all sight of proportionality and perspective. I think also 
what's been revealed here is just the, the kind of method of government. Uh, if you do one thing with this story, it will be to change government by WhatsApp group. I really suspect that is going to come to an end after this. But it's the sense that people are flailing around, making decisions on the fly. I think that's almost what would shock people the most, that it's, it's so arbitrary and it's so I think, whimsical. I think you touch on something there with the arbitrary nature of it. Um, and there is a particularly shocking example of that to me, because to me, the suffering of, of the elderly in care homes, the isolation of the elderly, the fact that married couples in some cases were in the same homes but didn't see each other for months on end, even a year, because of the supposed risk. And, and there was a risk, of course, this virus did present a risk to very elderly, frail people. Um, but the, the, the fact that they were cut off for so long from their relatives was awful for them. It was horrendous for their loved ones. And what we learned from these messages is that there was a rather heroic minister, Helen Watley, uh, who was campaigning behind the scenes, lobbying uh, Matt Hancock to relax those visiting restrictions. She was arguing. Um, I think we've actually got that. We can put that on the yeah. screen. She says, wish we could loosen on children under 12 on rule of six. That was one example. It would make such a difference for families, etc. Matt Hancock says, they don't want to go there on this. And Helen says, are we they? He says, as in number 10. I mean, that's so it wasn't the example I was thinking of, though it's an interesting one. The example I was thinking of is where she's asking him to ease up on visiting restrictions, pointing out that these people are, you know, towards the end of their lives, seeing their relatives is what makes life worth living, and that some were really suffering as a result of loneliness. And she goes on and on, brilliantly, I have to say. And in the end, Matt Hancock pushes back, pushes back, and eventually just says, oh, all right then, you win. You know, like the Roman emperor, in the film Gladiator, who puts his thumb up or thumb down to say whether a losing combatant should live or die. That's how it felt to me. You know, these were decisions that had enormous ramifications for people. An extra day here, an extra week, an extra month, an extra six months of restrictions could make lives unbearable. How were they made by, oh, all right, shrug, shrug, thumb up, thumb down? Mm. The idea of spin here, um, the idea that not only were the decisions arbitrary, but time and time again, they were made on the basis of PR or, or what things might look like. At one yes. point, Hancock was saying, oh, well, it won't look good because Scotland's done this and yes. we don't want to look slow yeah. or too fast. Yeah. And it's that sort of, it's Blairite, isn't it? It's that deep, and let's face it, Matt Hancock, who is the political you know, trainee of George Osborne, who yeah. in turn is basically a trainee of Tony Blair, they come from an unbroken line of so-called professional politicians who, who take comms as the ultimate good in like... And you see that throughout the messages, an obsession, an utter fixation of who is saying what in the media about them. What are the reports saying? What are the headlines saying? Which journalist is writing what? What about that feature piece in which I'm made to look good or not look? Um, you know, look, guys, millions of people were suffering. People were on their knees during this pandemic. And you're obsessing about who's tweeting what? I mean, something's gone very wrong there. Okay, this this is really... I'm just going to come out with this because it's been embarrassing me all morning. Uh, we've got to put this on the screen. 5th of it? March 2020, <laughs> re revealed uh, this morning in the Daily Telegraph, uh, a chat between Dominic Cummings, the advisor to Boris Johnson, and the Health per Department of Health Permanent Secretary, and some spinners. Um, Freddie Sayers on Twitter. 
highly unusual poll alert, voters of all kinds approve of the government's handling of this crisis. I'm highlighting an unusual poll where the government <laughs> gets good poll rating. It went everywhere in the government. They were obviously very excited about it. This is good, he says, and helpful to point out to people if anyone is trying to score political points at all, the public is on our side. So I am I deeply think, sorry for yeah, I think tweeting you've, that. You've 5th got of a role March. there. <laughs> am I now the you know enabler of the lockdowns that happened 10 what days later? What date was that? 5th of March. Oh what, dear, what, oh dear, it's me, all gone wrong now. It's all, I, I <laughs> want to be public about it. To me what that shows, other than you've got to be careful about what you tweet because someone in government is going to try and you know, yes. use it to their advantage, is it's just so kind of low rent that they're making these decisions yeah. about people saying stuff on Twitter, about opinion polls, whether they're popular or not. It's, it's everything you hope governments are not. I mean, you said that you've got to be careful because someone in government may try to use it to their advantage. But actually, you also have to be careful because, as we now know, people in government were using the machinery of the state to use it to the disadvantage of anyone who was tweeting the opposite of what you were tweeting. So the, the vilification of those of us, of which I'm only a tiny part, who questioned consistently... Uh, one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The government's response to this, who, who wanted to know what is the evidence, what is the uh, cost-benefit analysis for the measures that were being taken, who wanted to know more about the collateral damage and what thinking was going on behind the scenes in government as to you know when they said um, protect the NHS, what did that actually mean? We saw this over the appalling treatment of the very eminent public health experts, epidemiologists, virologists that signed up to the so-called Great Barrington Declaration. I mean, that's such an important story. Um, and those scientists 
and other experts suffered such reputational damage. They were smeared and they were, you know, there was a real operation to discredit those people, to, to present them as cranks, to say that they were kind of, you know, there was something wrong with them, uh, and also to impugn their motives. This is awful. It really is awful. Um, and I think if there's one thing that comes out of this, I hope it is that those who disagree with what appears to be some kind of overwhelming consensus are given a greater hearing mm. when it's of such importance, which is what platforms like yours does. Well, unheard. That is our, our mission. Let me just raise a couple of specific points here from, from these messages. Another one we haven't spoken about is the role of Simon Case. He, so right. he was he was permanent secretary at number 10. He then became cabinet secretary, which yes. is the number one civil servant. Yes. I mean, people online talk about the deep state and the idea that there are kind of invisible actors who aren't, yeah. represent, aren't um, democratically elected having a great deal of power. Evidently, that is true. What's so surprising here, I think, from these messages is that normally you think of the kind of civil servant role to be a bit more mature, yeah. to be putting the brakes on. You've yeah. got power-hungry ministers yeah. getting overexcited. They should be kind of pouring cold water on it. Yeah. And instead, here he is. He, Simon Case says, any idea how many people we locked up in hotels yesterday? Hancock says, 149. And Simon Case says, hilarious. Uh, later, he's talking about ramping up messaging, the fear, guilt factor, vital. He sounds like a spinner. He sounds like a, a spad. A what he advisor. sounds like to me is someone who's rather enjoying it a lot too much. And, that, and actually, they were. Look, they were caught up in their own heroism. They were caught up in their own heroism as they found themselves at the centre, at the epicentre of this unprecedented global health crisis. Basically, they drank their own Kool-Aid. They began to think it was funny to lock people up, to use the powers of the state, to force people into tiny hotel rooms, to gleefully observe you know, how funny it was when wealthy people ended up in those uh, horrible rooms and the, what they described in these cheap hotels, for which they would have been charged a great deal of money. I mean, the reality of it was this was pretty naive because no wealthy people, no super rich people of the type that they are poking fun at ever did that. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it is um, pretty distasteful, isn't it, to see the machinery of government and the key operators in it enjoying their power so much. Yeah, another example, Hancock, we can put on the screen, he shares a story, Scarborough woman jailed for coughing at police, he shares with Home Secretary at the time, Priti Patel, law and order, exclamation part, she returns, and then another time he sends to Boris Johnson, a man and woman have been fined £10,000 each for failing to quarantine after returning from Dubai. Superb, says Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister. It's the tone. Let, it's let's the tone. not forget that our then Home Secretary, a Conservative Cabinet Minister, Priti Patel, actively encouraged the people of this country to snoop and spy on each other. For me, that was one of the most shocking interventions of the whole pandemic. What kind of country are we where neighbours are encouraged to report on each other? What is that? It's not the, it's not the way a, I would expect a um, liberal democracy to work. I wouldn't want to be too personal about some of these figures. Um, like you, you know, I think we should try and keep that out of it. But you do kind of get a sense of a lot of small men small-minded men, and most yes. of them are men, yes. kind of getting off on it in some way. These are, these are dweeby people who have been working in politics their whole life. They're suddenly really excited to have this job, and they suddenly get real 
as you say, imperial power, where at the stroke of the pen, millions of people's lives can be changed. And they are getting off on it. This is, there's something weirdly kind of basic about it, that these little guys suddenly have too much power and, yeah, it makes them feel like a big man. But why were the bigger blokes and the bigger women so complicit? There were plenty of cabinet ministers who could have taken a stand who were privately very concerned about what was going on. They had serious reservations. We know, for example, that Gavin Williamson, then Education Secretary, did not think schools should be closed as much as they were, did not think that homeschooling should become some kind of lazy default for very long periods. I think he should have resigned over it. I know he because he's said so, he said to me privately, and I'm not breaching any confidence because he's now said so publicly, that he's also wondered in retrospect whether he should have resigned. Had he resigned at the time, I think it could have made a real difference. But the reality is that as politicians so often do, they take the path of least resistance. It was much easier to go along with it, convincing themselves that they were more effective making their, making their reservations known privately. Well, how effective did that turn out to be? Frankly, not, not effective at all. I mean, it's almost deeper than that, isn't it? That, and if you look at the opinion polling, time after time it shows, even now, mm -hmm. that most people don't think that lockdowns were a mistake. Most people <laughs> still think that it was the yes. right decision. Yeah. And, you know, we could get all psychological about why that is. And people are, of course, entitled to reach a different view. But there is something quite frightening and fundamental that we discovered during that period, which is people are quite acquiescent by nature, whether they're yeah. politicians in cabinet or yeah. people out in the public. They you don't are, mind being told what to do. No, I'd go further than that. They quite like it. Because, of course, if you're told what to do, you don't have to think for yourself, do you? You don't have to make a... Uh, you don't have to weigh up the evidence. You don't have to decide what level of risk you're prepared to take, either on your own behalf or on behalf of your family. You've been instructed, you've been issued with what the Prime Minister described, the then Prime Minister described at the time as a very clear instruction, stay at home from X time of day, you must stay at home. Well, how nice and easy is that? So I agree with you. I think that um, in many ways what it said about the human psyche was a bit disappointing, but I don't want to get into there because I'll just start talking some kind of, you know, ill-informed psychobabble. But the psychology of um, small numbers of people in immensely powerful position versus a frightened population is something that I think real experts will look at for a very long time. Matt Hancock is someone you obviously know well. You wrote his book for him. Mm -hmm. um, You've been asked a whole load of questions about that. I'm not going to rehash them on this interview. But I'm genuinely curious what your impression of him is coming out of this. He's now certainly been through the wars. <laughs> he's, had a, he's had some ups and downs in the past um, year. I, you can't feel like he has much of a political future after all of this. Um, what sort of person is he? Matt is an incredibly able and intelligent person. I mean, one of the joys of the circles in which you move, the circles in which I move, is being around people that are super clever. He, there is no doubt he is an exceptionally bright guy. I never had to explain anything twice Wasn't to that bright spell of him out to anything. Give all his WhatsApp messages to someone who opposed his main policy. I think that there were advantages for him in the relationship. 
I am good at what I do. He got a fantastic book out of it, which was serialized in the Daily Mail over several days. He could not possibly have written that book by himself or anything like it by himself. So it was a transactional arrangement in his mind. I mean, I just, I just got to say, he's not sounding that right in the description so far. He, he couldn't write his own book, would have not been nearly as good. Well, he's, and, not a, he's not a writer, is he, to be and, fair? And so he made you, a bit of a sort of basic error by sharing it with you. Uh, what, well, you where know is what? this I'm great not, brightness? You know what that, I'm not going to do? Is, I'm not going to sit here and be rude about Matt Hancock. You asked me what he's like. I answered that I think he's very able. Um, I don't agree with, and very was very open about that with him. I don't agree with many of the decisions he took, but I understand his perspective on why he took them. Um, and I think he's got a phenomenal work ethic. Um, I think there was no, no counting the hours in the day. He didn't care about my time, but he didn't care about his time either. We had a job to do and we got it done. And he's currently suing you? I've not had any um, yet legal letter from Matt Hancock. Uh, that was a risk I was prepared to take. Final message I want to focus yeah. on today is something that came out literally today between Chris Whitty, the yeah. Chief Medical Officer, Patrick Valance, who is Chief Scientific Officer, and Dominic Cummings, who obviously yeah. was advisor to Boris Johnson. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to put it on the screen and read it out. Okay. Um, there will be, this is what Chris Whitty says about the coming vaccine. There will be a lot of good vaccine candidates that enter early clinical trials in the next few months. The rate-limiting steps are late clinical trials for safety and efficacy and then manufacturing. For a disease with a low, for the sake of argument, 1% mortality, a vaccine has to be very safe so the safety studies can't be shortcut. So important for the long run. This is back in February 2020, before the lockdowns even started. And that sounds like quite good common sense. You could argue that the 1% mortality has subsequently been revised downwards. But overall, his point is that the disease wasn't serious enough to rush through a vaccine. Do you think he stuck to his word here? I mean, we know they did rush through a vaccine and they would argue and defend that decision to the hilt. What I can say uh, is that there was a continual tension, and I don't mean you know any kind of negativity around their relationship, but there was a continuing, continuing tension between Matt Hancock and his medical and scientific advisors over what pace they could go at. Um, and Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance and all the others around these decisions were always very clear that no corners could be cut. You know, they kept hammering home that message. Matt always wanted to push further and faster. He would have seen that as his job and his responsibility. He just wanted to accelerate everything. Um, I think he felt that if, um, you know, if there were some unfortunate consequences of that for a very small number of people, then that was a price worth paying in the much greater good. Um, and he, I think, would defend that position. Does he spell that, that out in, any, in his messages? I don't want to go into detail here, not because it's a secret, but because I can't remember the precise wordings. But there is certainly an exchange in which he's warned that if you go too fast, you will kill people. You know, now, I don't want to over-egg that, um, but it is in the public domain. In fact, it may well even be in his book. So you know, he felt so the, that he was doing his the, job. That message you refer to sounds yeah. kind of important. Is, is this going to be I think it's already the out Telegraph? there. I think it's already, it may well even be in his book. Um, 
I agree with you. What does he say you. in response to that warning? I don't recall. Um, you know, not every message has an answer um, because they were doing so many things at any one time. And I think it's really important to say that, you know, there have been questions over whether the Telegraph has selectively published, you know, as whether, you know, we've missed out key bits of conversations. And actually, the paper has been tremendously careful not to do that. So where bits are missing, we acknowledge that they're missing. Where we don't know if a meeting happened or if something was followed through, we say so. Concluding thought um, from you, Isabel. Mm. I mean, obviously, it's been an interesting week. For you, I think it was only seven days ago that the first. My job is never dull. Uh, first <laughs> messages came out. Have we got many more weeks of this? Or, or, or do you think we're nearly there for for season one of the lockdown files? Or <laughs> do you think there'll be expect? a sequel? You know, next time I'm hired to ghostwrite a cabinet. Something minister, tells me that's but... not going to happen anytime soon. Oh, I don't know. I often um, defy expectations. Um, so I don't know how long it's going to run for. Look, there are 2.3 million messages, but I think it's, I don't think you want to overplay your hand um, in an expose like this. You know, we've made a tremendous impact. I hope that we will have changed some things for the good. Otherwise, what on earth is the point of this? Um, and why not just make them public? Why not redact that's, that's or get, a, get, rid, really, of, get think, rid of ones that are yeah. dangerous or break some kind of mm -hmm. official secrets act? put them on the internet, people can search them themselves? So that's a really interesting question. Um, the immediate reason is because uh, they are so full of things that are private and are not in the public interest. You know, there are many things in there, or at least some things in there, that people would be very entertained by, but are not for public consumption. It wouldn't be right to put that out there. There are an awful lot of civil servants' names, telephone numbers, private details, addresses, you know, the operation required to redact all of that would be tremendously time consuming. And I don't think dumping it all onto the internet would be a responsible thing to do. Okay, Isabel, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. That was Isabel Oakshot, the journalist who has been at the centre of a media storm here in the UK about the so-called lockdown files. These are all the WhatsApp messages between Matt Hancock and everyone he knows throughout the COVID era that she has made public via the Daily Telegraph. Most journalists in the past week have focused on the kind of internal workings, whether she should have placed the story in the Telegraph, not the Times, because she worked for Times Radio, or why did she betray the confidence of Mr. Hancock when he had made her sign a non-disclosure agreement to get the messages in the first place, etc. As you can tell, I skipped over those questions, not because I think they're easy to answer, and they probably aren't, but because they're much less important than the big question, which is what these messages show about that extraordinary period in history and the way huge decisions that affected all of us and inadvertently everyone in the world were taken by a few blokes on WhatsApp making decisions on the hoof, often for political, not scientific ends. And that is worth knowing. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to Isabel. This was Unheard. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.